Well, tonight we will continue to look at Scripture together. And um, I'm going to ask you, if you've got a Bible, to turn to Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10 is, is, uh, is where we'll be. And uh, we'll be at several different places tonight, but uh, we'll start there in Romans chapter 10. And we've been looking at Scripture, uh, the teach, what, what Scripture teaches about Scripture. Uh, God's Word is God's Word. We've looked at it being clear, and tonight we want to look at it being necessary, that it is indeed necessary. So let me start with this. Let me ask you a couple of questions. Uh, do we need to have a Bible or to have someone explain, uh, tell us what the Bible says in order to know that God exists? No, we don't, do we? We talked about this Sunday night. How else do we know that God exists? It's built within us. Yeah, he's hardwired us that way. Yeah, nature, you look around and everything declares the glory of God. All sorts of things. Um, you, you can look around and know that, that there is a God. Uh, Greg brought up a great point Sunday night, I thought. Um, you know, is more than just this innate sense that there is a God. There's this innate sense in us that certain things are wrong and certain things are right. And that in itself points to there, there being someone who has established that. And so we don't necessarily need a Bible or have to have someone tell us what the Bible says to know that God exists. Do we need, it, need to have a Bible to know that we are sinners and need to be saved? No. No. I, I, we talked about this as well. You can go to various parts of the world and uh, where there are people groups who have never heard any of the Word of God, who have never heard of Jesus, and there is this sense within them that they have offended God in some way and they are spending their lives trying to appease that God. That's what religion is. I mean, that's what religion is trying to make yourself acceptable to God. And that's you go anywhere in the world and you're going to find different forms of religion. Do we need to have a Bible to know how to be saved? Yeah. yeah, Lisa's bold back there. Lisa's shaking her head, and she's right. Yeah, we do. We have to have a Bible or have someone explain what the Bible says if we're to know how to be saved. See, you don't have to have a Bible to know that there is a God, but if you're going to know who He is, what He's like, what He requires, what He has done in your shortcoming to make you acceptable before him, then yeah, you need the Bible because the Bible tells us that. The Bible is the record of that. Do we need to have a Bible to know God's will for our lives? Nobody wants to jump out there on that. Yeah, some, okay, I see some of you do. Yeah, yeah, we do. We absolutely do. God has spoken. God has given us his word and in that, we often think of God's will being this sort of um, transcendent thing out there that we just have to find. We're on this quest to find God's will for our lives. When in reality, all of the Bible is God's will for our lives. God's spoken. You know, uh, it's not as if God has just been, been vague and said, I've created you with this grand purpose. Now go find it. 
Now, how would that be? You know, and that's that's what a lot of world religion says. It's trying to find that enlightenment. But our God is so gracious. He has not left that up to us. He's not left it in, a, in an obscure way. He's spoken specifically. I mean, down to things like um, uh, marriage, raising of children, and right and wrong, and various intricate details. He's given us things like, you shall not murder. Now, we would know, I think, instinctively, that that's one of those that's been written on our hearts. But aren't you glad that God actually wrote it down? God's will for your life. Because there are people out there that reject that innate sense within them and say, well, what's wrong for you may be wrong for you, but it's not necessarily wrong for me. And I'm so glad that there is a law that has been written by God that says this is right or this is wrong. So we see here, obviously, in these questions that Scripture is absolutely necessary for some things. And Scripture is not necessary for others. And we're going to spend the next two or three weeks looking at how those things play out. Tonight, what I want us to do is I want us to look at how the Bible is necessary for knowing the gospel. If we're going to be saved, we must have our Bibles or have someone who has read a Bible and and can relay that to us. There are places in the world where there is no Bible translated into the language of the people. And that's why we send missionaries. That's why they go so that they who have read the Bible can then tell what the Bible says. But it's absolutely necessary for knowing the gospel. Romans chapter 10, uh, verses 13 through 17. Let's, let's read this together. You, you follow along as I read. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? Verse 17 says, So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Now, if you follow the logic of this, this is a very rational, logical passage. And here's basically what it's saying. This passage assumes, in verse 13, that a person must call on the Lord to be saved. Must. Not an option. There is no way to be saved other than through faith in Christ. Not just faith in a God, but specifically faith in Jesus. So it assumes a person must call on the Lord to be saved. Then in verse 14, a person can only call on him if they believe. Also in verse 14, a person can't believe in Christ if they've never heard of him. The person cannot hear unless there is a preacher. So my original point was, if we're going to know how to be saved, we need our Bibles or we need someone to explain it to us. And that's what this passage teaches. The conclusion here is that saving faith comes from hearing the word of God, whether read for yourself or spoken to you by a preacher. If you're here Sunday, one of the things I said was, I'm not the only preacher in this congregation. We're all preachers. If you're a believer, you're a preacher. 
Turn to John chapter 3, verse 18. We know John 3.16 very well. John 3.18, though, says, Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Some wrongly think that God would be unjust to send those um, who never hear the gospel to hell. This is an argument you hear. You start talking about that there's, there's not salvation in any other name other than Jesus. And you start making claims like what Scripture claims that unless a person believes in Jesus, they cannot be saved. And you hear, you hear people say, well, that's, that's awfully exclusive. Aren't you being judgmental? And the argument will naturally go to... Well, what about the guy on the island who never has an opportunity to hear about Jesus Christ? Well, David Platt phrases this in a very interesting way. He phrases it in what you often, maybe they don't say it this way, but they imply this. What about the innocent guy on the island who never hears about Jesus? And people say, well, God would be unjust to send him to hell. God would be unjust to send him to hell. If he was truly innocent. But the Bible here in John 3.18 says that he is already condemned. So see, the issue is not, hear me on this, the issue is not whether the person hears the name of Jesus and then either believes or rejects. You know, it's not as if... um, it's dependent on them hearing whether they then go from a morally neutral position before God to being either guilty or innocent. See, they're already condemned, whether they hear it or not. They, we, we stand before God as descendants of Adam, guilty. That's why we've got to go, and that's why we've got to preach, that's why we've got to tell, because they've got to hear the name of Jesus if they have any hope. It's not that if we tell them, then all of a sudden we put them into jeopardy. You know, if that's the case, then David Platt also makes the argument. He says, then these students who are coming from other countries who have never heard of Jesus, we should make it our mission to go to them and say, if anyone ever begins to talk to you about this thing called Christianity, he says, put your fingers in your ears and run away as fast as you can. Because as soon as you hear his name, you will be accountable. That's ludicrous. The person is guilty, condemned already in their sin. They must hear the name of Christ. They must not just hear the name of Christ. They must also believe on the name of Christ if they're going to be saved. Does that make sense? I hope I didn't muddy that any, but I I think that makes sense. makes it all the more important that we go and we preach, not so that we change their moral standing, but so that they have the opportunity. See, the gospel is gracious. The gospel is... is, People try to paint it in this judgmental light, as if God is sticking His nose in where it doesn't belong. The whole thing is grace. The fact that He would even send His Son and then call people to Himself that would then go and tell others that have not heard, that's grace. That is absolutely grace. I mean, 
if, if a person has cancer, and I know that the cure for cancer, I mean, it would be incumbent on me. It would be, it would be evil of me to say, I know the answer, I know the cure, but eh, I'm going to keep that to myself. See, the person already has cancer, and the cancer is going to kill them. And I've got the cure. It only makes sense that I would go and share the cure. And how much more valuable or important is the eternal destination of humanity and the gospel of Jesus Christ? John fourteen six, Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and I am the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. Exclusive. You can't come to God. You can't, you can't come before Him and be accepted, be made right with Him, other than through Jesus. That's exclusive. You know, and we live in a world that says, well, you shouldn't, you, you shouldn't exclude. You should just say that we're all going to wind up in the same place as long as we're sincere in whatever faith we have. Well, that would be fine if we were writing the thing. That would be fine if there's no ultimate God that we have to actually answer to. But since there is, and we're not writing the thing, then we have to play by his script. So it's not, it's not closed-minded or judgmental or exclusive. It's just God. Turn to Acts chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. Acts 4, 1 through 12. In fact, let me, let me just start in verse 5. The first four verses, um, Peter and John are arrested for, for preaching Christ. Uh, on verse 5, On the next day their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now, you, you say here, why you're belaboring this point. Is Scripture necessary for us to understand the gospel? Yes. I'm belaboring this point of there is salvation in no other way or name than Jesus Christ because how would you know that if it wasn't for the Word of God? You, you wouldn't. We, we wouldn't know that. It's been written down and it's been guarded and protected sovereignly, divinely, and brought to us and will go beyond us because God is in the business of saving a people for himself. 
So we have to have the word of God. It is absolutely necessary for us to understand the gospel. Well, some would say, what about those under the old covenant? What about those in the Old Testament that I mean, Jesus hadn't come yet? I mean, are, are they saved? Were, were they lost? Are they lost today? Well, the re- reality is they're saved in the same way that we are saved. By trusting the revelation that God has given us. What was the revelation that God had given those Old Testament saints? What did he promise them? The Messiah. The Redeemer would come. And they are saved, even though Christ hadn't come in their lifetime yet, they were saved in the same way that you and I are. We have the privilege of looking back on history to the, as we're looking at on Sunday nights, to the climax of the story where Jesus came, lived, died, was buried, and was raised again. But they had a different perspective. They had the perspective of looking forward And while they could not see that specifically, couldn't see how that would play out, the timing of it, they still trusted it. That's what Hebrews 11 is all about. Turn to Hebrews chapter 11 to verse 13. Hebrews 11, 13, Hebrews 11, if you don't know, is the great hall of faith. Listed there are men and women who died trusting in what God had promised, and they have been named as examples for us to look to because they believed the word of God. Hebrews eleven thirteen, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. I mean, you, you think about this. You think about the ridicule that Noah must have faced. I mean, think about that. For all those years, what was it, 120 years, he stands out there. Was it 120, I think, and he builds that boat. And, you know, there's comedians that have said, you know, Noah, what you building? I'm building a boat. What's a boat? You know, it had never rained before. And he, What's going to rain? What's rain? What's going to flood the earth? Oh, Noah, you're off your rocker. You're spending too much time with the animals, Noah. You know, you need to come back to reality. And for all those years, he builds this thing, builds this thing, builds this thing because God had told him to. And he took the word of God and he trusted God and he did it regardless of what the world said. And he was saved by faith. Hebrews 11 uh, same same chapter here, verses 24 through 26. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ. Wait a minute. I thought Jesus hadn't come. He considered the reproach of the promised Messiah. Greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. See, the writer here of Hebrews has the privilege of looking back at history to the climax where Christ was crucified, buried, and raised again. But he points out that Moses, while he didn't have that privilege, he looked forward to the promise of that Messiah. 
So, yes, they are saved. They are saved in the same way that you and I are by trusting whatever amount of word of God that they, th- they have. What about those people who lived between the fall in Genesis 3 and when God did promise the Messiah? Wasn't there a window in there where, where God hadn't made that promise yet? What about them? Were they just out of luck? Are they saved? Are they lost? Well, I would say to you, what window? Go all the way back. This is, this is the last verse I'll give you tonight. But go all the way back to Genesis 3, verse 15. I want to show you how committed God is here to redeeming a people for himself. Speaking to them so that Romans 10 could be true for humanity. Not just a certain select generation. Genesis chapter 3 verse 15. If you're not familiar with Genesis 3. It is the story of how Adam and Eve chose to rebel against God. And eat the fruit of the tree that was forbidden to them. Their eyes were opened. They realized they were naked. And they began to hear from God hide from God, and it was in that moment that they died spiritually and were headed at that point, were cast into a world where they were headed toward an eventual physical death. But look at Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. God immediately, with Adam and Eve, speaks to the serpent and he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman. And between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The movie, The Passion of Christ, Mel Gibson's movie has been out for several years now. And the opening scene of that is Jesus in the garden and Jesus is there, moonlit garden. And there's a serpent that comes slithering in. And it's suspenseful. It comes building up. And you see Jesus, and he's there praying, and he's before the Father. And the scene is depicting Jesus, before he's arrested, praying, God, if there's any way, let this cup pass from me. But nevertheless, not what I will, whatever you will. And it's at that point the snake comes to his foot, and the foot of Jesus in the movie raises up, and the heel stomps down. And crushes the head of that snake. It's a reference to this verse. See, there was no window. There was no window of time where people were just lost without any hope. We're talking about the original two that rebelled against God. Immediately, God makes provision. Immediately, they are to look forward to the one who would come from her womb eventually That would crush the head of the serpent. See, that's the grace of our God. Isn't that good? There is no, there's no one, there's no one who does not have the opportunity to repent and turn to Christ. Everyone has that opportunity. Not everyone will. But God has made the provision so that everyone could. Isn't that good? Isn't that cause for great praise? I mean, not just us, not just our generation or a 
a couple of generations before us, but this is the heart of our God revealed all the way to immediately following their rebellion against him. Our God is great. Let's pray together. God, my heart is stirred at your grace. Your word, Lord, is a precious gift. It is absolutely necessary for us. God, I thank you that you put me in a context with with family and people who loved me and who shared the gospel with me, who taught me the story of the gospel because they had been taught. Lord, I thank you for calling me to yourself, for quickening me from the dead, for making me alive to you. God, I thank you for the grace that it took for me to turn from my sin and trust you as Lord and Savior. God, thank you. Lord, I, I pray that, Lord, that it would stir within us a missional spirit. One where we understand, God, that those people that we live around and work with, whatever the case may be, God, that if they don't know you as Lord and Savior, they don't have any opportunity to know you as Lord and Savior unless someone tells them. Unless someone shares the word of God with them. God, I pray that you would burden our hearts with that or that we would thank you for the word, but God, that we would not hold on to it and hoard it for ourselves. But God, that we would be generous with the word that we have received, that we would truly be God. I pray in this congregation that you would call us out as ministers of reconciliation. That is your will for our lives. God, I pray that you would wake us up to it. God, I pray that you would send out from our congregation workers into the harvest. And God, that you would continue to redeem a people for yourself as you have been from the very beginning. And God, that you would do that through us. And that we would receive no credit. But God, that you alone would get all the glory, both here and one day, throughout all of eternity. God, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.